Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your co-hosts are Ronnie Langer-Kroger and Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Envision. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg. In other episodes, we have discussed the benefits of the cooperative business model, being or becoming worker-owned. We've highlighted the benefits of bridging cultural divides to create the future we want. We've explored money, what it is, how to slow it down in your community. We've discussed how to measure happiness on a national level. We've also talked about the benefits that can accrue in a community where there is an active ecosystem catalyst organization or ecosystem entrepreneur. Today's show profiles an organization that demonstrates concretely what's possible when worker-owned and operated, when cultural divides are bridged, when the community is engaged in its own success, and when the alternative funding opportunities are leveraged. This organization is CERO Co-op in Dorchester, Massachusetts. CERO stands for Cooperative Energy Recycling and Organics. It is an award-winning commercial composting company, and they provide food waste pickup and diversion services for a wide range of commercial clients in the Metro Boston area. CERO transports these compostables to local farms where they are returned to the soil and used to support the local agricultural economy. CERO's mission is simple. Keep food waste out of landfills, save money for clients, and provide good green jobs for Boston's hardworking communities. My guest today is Laura Holmes, General Manager of CERO. Laura, welcome to the show. How you doing, Thomas? Doing well. Glad you could be with us today. So, Thanks for your interest. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, I, I think this is a really fascinating story to share, and so I'm looking forward to, to just diving <laughs> right in. So. Could you begin by just explaining a little bit more about how CERO got started and, and what its origins are? CERO's a grassroots entrepreneurial business that was started by uh, folks who were active in their communities. They were black and brown, African-American and Latinos uh, from neighborhoods in Boston, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, and um and East Boston, and they wanted to, uh, what they decided right off the bat were two things. They wanted to be involved in developing a green economy, and they wanted folks from their communities to have access to uh, these green jobs, you know, inspired by folks like, like Van Jones. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the second thing that they decided very early on was that they wanted their form of business to be a worker-owned cooperative. Now, some of the folks who had been um, from both cultural backgrounds of being Latin American immigrants uh, and from being um, folks with connections to black, black Americans in the South of the U.S., um, are familiar with co-ops. I know that they're a part of the fabric of, of the histories in their, in their cultures, but um, it hasn't been something that's been highly visible or gotten a lot of traction um, in our communities until very recently. And these guys were sort of early on when in the 19, uh, 2011, they started talking about forming a co-op. Um, There's one of my coworkers. I hope you're not hearing the beeping in. <laughs> <laughs> trying to call me up. <laughs> um, 
Uh, that would be Josefina. She would talk about all this much more eloquently than I. But anyway, they wanted to form a worker-owned cooperative. So um, they teamed up with a couple of nonprofits in the community. Um, ACE, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, one of the organizations was um, uh, folks involved with um, Cory reform, trying to um, help formerly incarcerated folks have uh, more just ways into the economy mm-hmm. um, and the uh, prison industry gets in the way of that in a variety of ways. And so um, they had the Boston Workers Alliance um, had won some reforms in that area. And some of our founding members had been active with that organization as well as others who were part of uh, Immigrant Workers Center and other activities uh, with MassCosh, which is our um, Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health. So those two nonprofits helped um, helped the founders uh, be able to apply for a grant. And when they received that grant, the founders of COA of of CITO, um, there were about about you know probably starting with a room of of twenty to thirty um, folks who came in interested in having this conversation about is there something we can do to make jobs for ourselves. Um, and after months, some some months, by this point, they were probably down to about 12 to 15 folks who were coming to the meetings, but very deep interest um, and uh, a very interesting scenario um, that they were staying together and really committed to this, this goal. And when they got the grant, they decided to uh, contract with someone who could teach them how a cooperative works, teach them how to how to organize a cooperative business, and they decided to also hire a startup manager. Mm-hmm. And that was the job that I applied for and, and came into. And we worked together. Uh, uh, everybody got trained. You know, we did, we did uh, I think it was 13 weeks of co-op education. Um, Stacy Cordero of Boston Center for Community Ownership um, led us in that effort or were the folks that, that the Seto founders, um, the, the, the founders who are still among us are Josefina Luna, uh, Timothy Hall, and Stephen Evans. Uh, we also have Evelyn Fuentes and Guadalupe Gonzalez, who are still board members. Mm-hmm. Um, and other folks have come and, gone, come and gone along the way, and there are other newer members of Seto of Co-op, in, including myself, although when I was hired... Um, the the members made it clear that they wanted me to also become a worker owner. Mm. And I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know what that means? That means even if there's no money, you got to do the work. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, uh, I think, I think they were, they were kind of smart if they want me around to, uh, to get me to agree to that. It wasn't very difficult. I was very excited about what we might do together. It's a dynamic group of people and they have great ideas and they have a lot of skill and experience. Um, and they know the community really, really well. Uh, so we were to, we set about, um, doing a feasibility assessment and, uh, thinking about what might be potential, um, businesses that we could create together, given our skill sets and interests and, um, something along the lines of green jobs. They wanted to be in recycling or uh, a burgeoning recycling sector um, is what they their intent was. So those were pretty good marching orders 
that helped us uh, land on the ultimate business plan that we had written about six months later. Super, super. So uh, you mentioned that it, Perhaps I misheard you, but I understood that you were saying that very it was unusual to see cooperative business models in these communities. And so I was just curious why why you think that is? what what has prevented co-ops from from appearing more frequently in communities of color or lower income communities? Oh, well, um, uh, because capitalism sucks. <laughs> um, you know, how, how real should I be in this interview? You can, uh, as, as you real as you'd like. Rules. I mean, we want, we um, want to hear your, you know, what, what you feel. I mean, if there is, if, if there are st- structural or systemic things that are preventing. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, you know, first of all, we can talk about it in this in a number of ways, you know, why is it so difficult for any businesses in low-income communities of color to get off the ground? It's not that there's mm-hmm. ever been any lack of creativity or determination or hard right. work. It, 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 it goes it's back access to, to funding. The, yeah. Frequently. To the, yes. To the core issues of, you know, you gotta, you gotta have money to make money. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money, then you've got to be able to get money. And right. if you're black and brown, if you're immigrant and you don't speak English, uh, uh, it, it's it, you don't get money easily. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's some systemic inequalities, you know, connected with race and class and 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 where you live, the neighborhood that you live in, the, the conditions for starting a successful business. So we can talk about it that way. Now we're not even talking about worker co-ops, right? In I, I think that um, at different periods in history, I think that communities of color and low-income uh, communities, in, uh, immigrant and, and communities of color, have histories of deploying cooperative models in some translation or another. And I'm not, you know, a historical expert on it, but there's some very good books out there mm-hmm. um, uh, that people can find. Um, so it's sort of not surprising because it's logical to say, you know, like if none of us have enough money to do something on our own, um, why don't we, why don't we throw in together and see what we can do? Right. You know, and you know, a, a, a lot of, um, low income black and brown people and low income white people, I mean, I don't mean to be talking about others because I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a white person. Who, who got um, welcomed into this community, and we are mixed. Uh, it's just that there were no white people among the original founders. So I talk about Pluto, um, honoring that that POC grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, immigrants and and folks in neighborhoods that I've lived in in Boston um, have always started businesses, but you know. How successful can you be? How many jobs can you provide? You know, all those kinds of things are hard to do. There have been a few co-ops. We have, we've had, I remember, you know, as I've been around Boston, food co-ops. Um, there's a, a, what now must be 40 or 50 year old, um, printing co-op mm-hmm. in the neighborhood that we try to all support. And uh, now there's okay. a lot of interest in co-ops. Yeah, I may be getting off track. I can't remember if there's another question. <laughs> That's okay. That that was that was helpful. Thank you for 
for expanding on that a little bit. So you also mentioned that there, you know, you were trying, you were interested in, in, you know, being inspired by Van Jones in creating green collar jobs and particularly around recycling and composting. And so what, um, you, you focused on a regulatory driver mm-hmm. in particular, right? That was yep. Boston's 2014 organic waste ordinance. So are there other elements that make this special and, and, and how Cerro has, has developed? Um, what makes it special? Well, I, um, I'm not well, sure. Like, oh, I'm sorry, what direction- let, me, let me rephrase the question. So what, what makes, how does, uh, boss, how does that help shape what, what business how the regulation or, or yeah, how does that shape what the organization how did is that focused inform on? Inform our, our emerging, our developing business. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, it, it was significant. Um, uh, we were doing this research, um, and, um, my first day on the job, uh, I attended a zero waste, uh, conference training, um, to think about what zero waste means and what zero waste economies look like and, you know, uh, local, uh, and there were, there's sort of, so, so, uh, at the same, and then, and so I learned about zero waste and started educating myself about where the recycling opportunities were. And I was looking around at the markets and, you know, the, as we see is happening with recycled commodities, um, there's not really good markets for them, um, right now. Uh, if we were doing, uh, metal and cardboard, we probably wouldn't exist. So, um, call it luck, call it good research. Um, I think we made a good decision to go after the organics only. We did spend some time trying to imagine how could we collect, you know, seven or eight or nine source separated recycling materials. Uh, but the numbers didn't work out to do that. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so, but organics did as well. And, it, and organics, um, meaning, um, the collection of, uh, compostable, usually food waste. So what people call food scraps or food waste, um, and some other materials like papers and stuff like that, um, can, can, can be removed out of the landfill and save, uh, methane, which is one of the products of, of decomposing food waste, organic waste is, is as toxic as any greenhouse gas we got out there. Right. Um, and so, um, controlling the release of that, uh, is really, really important. So we hit on, you know, if people were going to start paying attention to waste reduction, whether, uh, because of scarcity or, or because of doing the right thing, um, our landfills are running out and we're trying to shut down our incinerators in Massachusetts. Um, so anyway, taking that or separating that organic waste is sort of the low hanging fruit, if you will, in the, mm-hmm. in the zero waste hierarchy. Um, so, uh, we hit the market in a good time. We were, we were prepared to launch our business just as the DEP regulation kicked in sort of by the skin of our teeth, but we were there <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and good. we had, That's uh, awesome. 
we had a small handful of, of customers who were going to pay. We had, uh, I think at that point in time, uh, nobody was getting paid. I, I, the grant paid for me. So what I got to, to do on behalf of the co-op was make it be my full-time job mm-hmm. to support that co-op. And, um, the other founders, uh, you know, supervised me every week. We still had these co-op meetings, but um, most everybody had one, if not more, jobs that they were holding down at the same time as we were building the business. So um, in October 2014, we started operating uh, a truck and and picking up compostable material from the customers mm-hmm. who we had, you know, worked with their employees to train them in how to do this new practice. And now we are running three trucks. We got uh, eight people working uh, full time, and we've got uh, we're we're uh, recovering um, and diverting uh, about fifty tons a week of material now. That's pretty um, awesome. That's pretty awesome. Right before we go to a break, I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal journey joining Cero. So if you could just give us a little bit more about you, so the, that would be fantastic. And then we can go do a quick break. Yeah, well, the path that brought me here. Um, well, I've, I've been all my adult life in, uh, in Boston. I was in Eggleston Square neighborhood uh, when I was raising a family. And uh, uh, I had um, my first real... An early job that I stuck with in Boston was as a school bus driver, which I did for nine years and got a real, real education in all the different neighborhoods. Um, People heard about busing in Boston. So I was like, you know, 19 years old and I started driving a school bus. Um, And that was a great education. Uh, It was about the same time that I was um, in my uh, activist life coming to to feel real commitments to, um, you know, racial and economic inequality in this country and um, wanting to engage with that however I could. So my job is being a bus driver and then driving truck and then working in human services. Uh, I always try to, to have at the top of my, uh, as, as much as I can incorporate into my life, um, justice. Um, and, and using whatever privilege I have in the service of justice. But, um, you know, so I had, so I worked in domestic violence for a while. Um, my work taught me, um, I learned from, from a lot of the, uh, low income women that I worked with, um, and that I knew (laughs) my friends, my own family, uh, our neighbors in this working class neighborhood, um, were all, uh, uh, you, you know, we're like, well, it's great to get services. It's great to get, you know, support uh, for for whatever your stuff is. It's great to get therapy, but uh, women felt like they were lacking financial power, um, and not necessarily power to make a lot of money, power to run corporations, but um, control over their own economic destinies. You know, I worked a lot with folks who experienced domestic violence. Uh, I went through domestic violence myself. And um, 
So, so that was a big eye opener to me. And in that capacity, women started saying, listen, we, we need to figure out how to get our own. Not unlike the, my, my colleagues now at Soto who wanted to start a co-op. And I think this has something to do with why they hired me was that, um, I had gone back to school to study economic development um, because people want to start their own businesses. And so I worked in a microenterprise program in the 90s. I did economic development work as part of what my work was in Chelsea, um, leaving there in 2007, and then I did some consulting, and then I wanted to work with a group of people again. And I applied for a job uh, with a group of folks that was to become Seto Cooperative. So here I am. Fantastic. Well, that's a very powerful story. Thank you. And we will be taking a short break. We're talking with Laura Holmes, who is general manager of Zero Co-op of Georgester, Massachusetts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My Favorite Coffee Story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to Envision. We are here with Laura Holmes, General Manager of Cerro Co-op, and we were talking about Cerro's origin 
and the importance of bridging cultural divides, selecting a cooperative structure, and also Laura's journey to joining CERO. Now I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit to some more of the specifics around CERO's experience. And I was first curious, you know, do you see a change in your customers where uh, how people are sourcing their food perhaps through your composting service? Is there greater awareness of how of creating the link to the local agricultural economy? Well, I think that uh, I, I can't claim that the extent to which I see that culture shift happening uh, is because of Cero and Cero's services. Um, what I do see is that we definitely, I think all of us feel like we are a part of that shift. Um, we may have been uh, lucky or astute in in, you know, seeing, riding this wave that's been coming. But, you know, around here, uh, we have found it's, it's a small but meaningful community of folks who really want to um, be part of, you know, uh, not only local, but also kind of building up our community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's trending right now. I think it's trending in, in a lot of communities, and that's a, that's a good thing. Yes. Um, I think the culture shifts, you know, to, to help us succeed as a uh, business reliant on this culture shift is uh, it's happening. We see momentum, but it's got a long way to go, at least around here in Boston. It has a long, mm-hmm. long way to go. We have hopes for uh, zero waste planning process that a advocacy coalition, including Seto Co-op, has been pushing for for about eight years. Um, we're uh, having to kind of hold back judgment at this point about uh, how much to hope for out of this process. Hard to tell how much buy-in we have in this city. I mean, you know, we're one of few uh, cities of our size and, you know, the kind of North Coastal reputation for being a, a progressive place. And, you know, Boston doesn't have a zero waste plan. We have no zero waste articulated goals at the municipal or state level to uh, to take up this stuff. And if you go to, you know, it's it's not just San Francisco and California. It's, uh, you know, it's Portland, Oregon and Austin, Texas and um, L.A., uh, New York City um, are all taking up zero waste planning processes as well as smaller towns all across the country, and Boston is behind in that. So mm-hmm. while we do see trends, we do see folks being excited about local, it's a really fun um, to be part of a uh, circular economy. And, you know, uh, if, if you ask me, I can tell you more about some of our local efforts going on that connects not only, you know, connecting B2B and, uh, consumers more to the things that they're buying and stuff like that. And compost absolutely plays a role um, when you can uh, take that, take take the food you don't eat and you can compost it and then you can, you know, take the soil and grow next year's food that you're going to eat right. and then compost and build that food loop. And then that food loop also, you know, produces energy for the community and produces healthy food for the community. You're going to see some nice, nice impacts of that and when right. you know people can have jobs 
Indeed. Um, That's important. In, in, that, in these kind of places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that brings me so to my fun. next question. That, that brings me to my next question, you know, in terms of, you know, there, there, how do you, how do you, how are you building your, you know, some of these activities you're talking about, whether it's building jobs or, or just br- making that circular loop and becoming more, make, bringing more awareness to that. How do you build your, your own supply and demand for this organic waste that you are? Oh, every way we can. You know, we're a business. So we've got a, a terrific sales team that is, is, is trying to. You've seen our website. So we have some, uh, some great um, videos. You know, we have a, a video that I call our commercial. It's like 35 seconds on why you should compost with Seto Co-op. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do a lot of old-fashioned calling and hitting the pavement and trying to get referrals and using social media. Um, one of the nice things about being in, in Boston is uh, how many schools are here. So um, we often get to work with interns who help us um, with, you know, whether it's a Twitter campaign or whether it's some blog writing or, um, you know, uh, students have done a lot of stuff with us in addition to, you know, official school like research projects that, that help us with the business. So, you know, sales and marketing has to be a, about what we do. We got to be selling uh, composting, but we got to be selling why you ought to be doing it with shadow. And the, the, what, the regulation out of the DEP, while it was helpful in uh, creating the market, um, selling to that market isn't you know, automatic. Right. Uh, there's a lot of folks even who are required to, to divert organic material who still aren't doing it. And, you know, DEP doesn't have the forces to, there's not to a anything. lot of uh, resources for enforcement. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's something we'd like to see strengthened as well. Super. So energy is part of the name, right? It's, it's cooperative energy, recycling organics. And so, what are you exploring on the energy side? We're exploring a little bit of further uh, vertical integration. Um, there, uh, the one part of our federal story that I would like to change is the fact that, as you know, uh, there's increasing recognition that the material that we're collecting is a resource. Um, we uh, still. Uh, haven't had any other choice but to export that material. So in other words, we work with two really great um, composting facilities. Uh, That's where we bring the material that we collect at the grocery stores and restaurants and hospitals and cafeterias. Um, And we bring that material. uh, One place is 20 miles west of town in the suburbs and another place is uh, about 25 miles north of town mm-hmm. and we pay a tipping fee for them to accept the material. They process it into compost. And then during the growing season, we, uh, uh, pick up some of that material that's been turned into beautiful compost loam growing mixes and we purchase it by the yard. We, so we pay the tip it by the town and we purchase it by the yard and bring it back to town for where we sell it to customers in urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that also means we're burning more diesel fuel, right? Right. So in this, this whole kind of 
how, how do you fix that? And talking about, you know, the cooperative and local and circular economies we've been talking about through this whole interview um, is to figure out how we can process it ourselves. We are, we are uh, working in partnership with City Soil, which is a uh, Boston-based composting facility, but uh, they have not yet been permitted uh, politically, I guess. Um, from uh, to accept food waste into their compost. So we had thought we would do that all along, and still aren't there four years in uh, wow. for letting us letting letting Bruce combine uh, food waste into the, uh, the the beautiful compost out in Mattapan. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe that will happen. And um, there's a great great need for for more and diverse infrastructure for processing this material, no matter. Who do you ask, right? So, right. Yeah. from a from a policy point of view, from an environmental point of view, and from a, a a commercial point of view, we need we need this infrastructure. And Seto, for for about the past four years, I have been um, studying uh, closed container anaerobic digestion. You know, um, what what kind of a biodigester might make sense for us? And so we are very interested in something that has not been done in Boston, but it has in other places, um, what we call community-scale AD. So we would be able to uh, process our own, the, the materials that we collect right in the community in a closed container, um, safe and clean facility, and uh, collect that methane, turn it into... Uh, Whatever form of energy we want, we can. We can. Uh, what I'd like to see us do first off is convert to renewable natural gas and fuel our trucks completely mm-hmm. clean. Then we'd be a carbon negative business. Um, uh, we also could direct wire, you know, electricity. We could set up e-car charging stations, um, and of course, in addition, you get composted digestate and liquid fertilizer. Um, right, which is pretty awesome stuff. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome stuff, and this would be, um, you know, not the not the mega systems that that mostly are being done. Nor would it be a place where, you know, sewage is combined in the mm-hmm. digestion process and other things that folks wouldn't necessarily want to return to the soil. Um, right. So we'll do that the greener way, as well. So now we're looking for um, partners to to host three demonstration projects for uh, small-scale AD, um, and uh, we think that a university would, would be a great... We, this is a, the kind of system that we can set up on a half-acre land or less, mm-hmm. completely but, self-contained. Yeah. Um, so a research could, could use the electricity trade-off and, and have their students do some programming related to the AD, uh, as well as getting you know the compost materials and landscaping benefits from it. Um, in an in an agricultural setting, we could uh, uh, use the methane to convert into heat for greenhouses and extended growing seasons. So, yeah, um, supporting the food loop again that way. Lots of different um, options. Lots of different options. So, I'd like to turn the yeah. focus to your staff for a moment. You mentioned that you have you were focused on some particular uh, on reintegrating formerly incarcerated folks and that you have currently about eight staff members. And so I was curious what criteria and process are you using to select employees and mm-hmm. 
or worker owners? And, and how is bringing on an employee in a co-op different than, say, a more traditional organizational structure? Um, it, it, it's somewhat different, but, you know, in, in many ways it's the same. I mean, we've brought new people into the co-op by um, needing to hire somebody to fulfill a role in the business. Um, so the business needs is where we start from. So for, for example, right now we're trying to hire, um, commercial drivers, uh, cause we have some more, as we grow, we need more truck drivers, both, uh, um, uh, folks who can drive, uh, big trucks and, and folks who can help with smaller trucks. So, um, and you know, John and Maya came into Seto and they're now worker owners but they were hired uh, as uh, sales team leaders. There are sales staff. And now they're also managers and part of the, the worker ownership structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are examples. Excellent. All righty. We're speaking oh, with Laura. Can I just say one more thing about that? How it's you different. May. Uh, the way the way it's different coming into Seto is that, you know, from the beginning of when we speak to people, um, we talk about what kind of business we are. We're always, you know, um, providing information about that we're a co-op and that it's important that anybody who chooses to come work with us, um, whether or not they become a worker owner, kind of understand that we operate in a different way. That um, there's there's usually a, a team of people consulted in, in many decisions. Um, and we make every effort not to operate in a hierarchical way, although we have to have lines of accountability, of course. Mm. So that's, that's quite different. Um, a lot of the folks who, um, are working I'll, I'll have to Seto. stop you there. I'm going to have to stop okay. you there. We, we're speaking with Laura Holmes and we'll be right back after a short break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. 
Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back. We're here with War Homes and we were talking in more detail about Cero's journey, the trends it's facing and why Cero chose it. Um, the employees that they have, have focused on and how they bring people on. So... I wanted to uh, bring in uh, the way that you have actually helped fund yourself, because I think that Cero's funding model is really fascinating. And you use something that's new, relatively speaking, that's called um, a DPO, a direct public offering. Could you describe what that is and, and why Cero felt this was the right way to go? Sure. Uh, direct public offering is uh, a sh- offering of shares. These shares are um, uh, available to non-accredited as well as accredited investors. In other words, they're designed to be accessible for people maybe who have not made an investment but want to support a community business uh, or whatever investment. Um, and they are non-voting but preferred shares. So they... Um, you know, every DPO is, is offered with uh, a memorandum that explains, um, like, a prospectus. And uh, in our case, uh, we were selling shares at a minimum buy-in of $2,500, which is what most of our 85 or so um, folks who bought shares um, invested. And they we tell them that we'll pay them uh, 4%. Um, annual dividends if uh, when the company starts breaking even and if it won't be um, bad for the health of Seto Co-op uh, to pay that dividend. We expect to pay our first dividends next year in 2019. That's pretty awesome. Um, that's pretty good, yeah. It's it's in the normal range of, of how long it takes businesses to, to get going and break even. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and the the other thing about the that characterizes is that they're non voting shares, which means um they understand that they're investing in a worker owned cooperative and that as shareholders they don't buy any influence in decision making and they don't buy any equity in the company. They will never own the company. 
because the workers own the company, unless they go to work with us. <laughs> right. So did you achieve your funding goal with the DPO? We did. We did. And that was the second. We had done a crowdfunding uh, campaign before that. Yeah, we had a goal of uh, $350,000. We raised three seventy. How long the, did that take? DPO. One year. Wow. That's not bad. Uh, that's, the, that's a part of the requirement in our state for the DPO. Um, yeah, one year. Fantastic. So if people are interested in exploring how to create similar community-based services, what, uh, what do you recommend? You know, if somebody uh, wants to do what makes a make make their own, you know, a cero in their own community. What would what would you recommend? What I resources do you recommend? I think they, I think they, folks should go for it. I think folks going in on something with other folks, you'll find other people who who want to do it. Um, you'll do it to the extent you dedicate yourself to it. It's it's what what not, are the resources? It's not easy. That, not a little bit of work. It's a lot of work, but I think starting anybody, any business, that would be the case. What, what, what are the resources that you would recommend for them to pull from to provide insight into doing that? It, there's a lot of resources for, for if you want to uh, do a worker-owned cooperative. I think that you know, if you start Googling, you'll find organizations like the U.S. Federation of Worker companies, worker co-ops. Um, there's an organization called DOWIE, which stands for Democracy at Work Institute. Um, and there's much, much more um, ways that people can find out about co-ops. And if, um, do you think that, I mean, you mentioned that the, uh, the, the ordinance around green waste, the compostables was not it was enough to open up the market or establish the market, but not enough to really shape the market. So, do you think the communities need to consider new ordinances or funding structures to make their own CERO equivalent effective and fiscally sustainable? Well, I I think that if if CEROs and co-ops and you know businesses that um, uh, are in the community, there's a lot a lot of ways that I think it's that cities and towns and governments and regulatory agencies and financial institutions need to support that to happen. Um, you know, it, it, the environment has not changed that much. Um, some There's efforts going on all over the place. We're part of uh, uh, the city of Boston has been looking into co-ops and thinking about how to support them. Um, they helped us um, get a, 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 a loan, a long-term loan with uh, very progressive terms, um, and that came through the city and was a result of this effort to figure out ways of supporting cooperatives. So I think those things are important. I think that um, ordinances around labor practices and support for small business uh, need to be expanded and need to be um, diversified. You know, uh, Boston, there's this, all this tech boom. And if you look at the venture capital 
going into these, you know, app developers and, and all of those things, it makes the money that Feto has like nothing. You know, it didn't have to be as hard for us as it has been. Um, but access to capital is still very, very difficult for people like us. Um, and, and so I don't want to downplay that. And so, you know, it's a, it's a good story and there's a lot of positive things going on, but, um, it all needs more investment as well as, you know, on the environmental side. I mean, if we're going to take climate change and sea level rise and all this stuff seriously, uh, we've got to understand how waste reduction Zero waste um, practices fit into all of that. Um, it's not glamorous, but it's the reality. And, and, you know, we need more of that. So we need all the, the politicians and the regulators and the institutions to, to throw in together. If we're going to, if we're going to be here for long. Mm-hmm. So what is one lesson you wish you knew when you started? Oh my God. So many. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish I knew how hard it was going to be to work with frozen compost in trucks in January in Boston. <laughs> what yeah, was I, I thinking? <laughs> yes, exactly. You have to heat the truck uh, so that the compost can actually move, right? You know, everybody in business will tell you a story. It was stories about whatever their particular operational financial nightmares are, you know, what keeps you up at night is the question they always ask. Um, but none of it makes me have regrets. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anyplace else. Um, we're, we're just starting out year four. We're still in the first quarter of year four. And, uh, I'm very excited about, about what's been, how Seto's going to be looking over the next four or five years. Mm-hmm. So what's next for Cero? Well, like I said, we're we're hoping that we can get these three demonstration anaerobic digesters set up in communities that will benefit from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're not about trying to become you know the biggest hauler. Um, we are the best, the greenest, and the cleanest, uh, most service rich. I mean, how often do you have somebody pull up to? to take away your compost who owns the company. You know, our drivers right. are worker owners too. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. But um, we're going to try and get these uh, three demonstration community ADs set up and um, see what other kind of jobs spin off from there. We'll, we'll yeah. um, run trucks to the extent that makes sense for us regionally. Um, we, we've, we've already set ourselves up, collect a good amount of feedstock. Now, if we can put that into converting clean energy and uh, creating more jobs from the ancillary products or something, I don't know, some, some kind of way we'll see how the, how the economy goes and where it takes settle. That's right. why our name includes, you know, energy recycling organics. Mm-hmm. Is that going to change the type of trucks that you have? Because you're going to have this a, a liquid... A, a oh, who knows? Digestate. And I mean, I don't know that we'll be uh, uh, hauling tankers of liquid digestate. We might be. Depends on where we are. You know, we might be applying that liquid digestate on a local farm, mm-hmm. or we might be dehydrating it and packaging it and selling, selling it online. It. Yeah. 
So what's the one thought or concept you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope that they will uh, support their local co-op. I hope that they will um, be part of of local small economies that, that try and shift business. I'd like them to check out uh, the Ujima Boston project, project, which we didn't have time to talk about, which is uh, a, an effort in our community to build a local economy. So sort of way beyond, Seto is just one business and what we envision as a much bigger ecosystem. Uh, yeah, and thanks to anybody who finds this interesting. Feel free to reach out to Seto. <laughs> Indeed. Go ahead. I was just going to say, feel free to reach out to us, you know, and if you know people in Boston, tell them to compost with us. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, too, to remind listeners that that we did an interview with with Ujima Boston in in January. So if you go oh, back good. to January 9th episode, you'll it, it's you'll see that. Uh You'll see that in the in the program list. So, uh, where can uh, people follow you and your work? So, you you mentioned, you know, reaching out and and so on and and asking questions. But how can people follow you? Yeah, you can find us uh, on the web at www.cero.coop. That's C-E-R-O.C-O-O-P. Um, we're on. Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff, uh, but I don't have those addresses in front of me right this second. They're probably findable. Um, Cyril Cooperative Boston. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Laura. It's been a delight having you here. Thank you very much, Thomas. It's been fun. Wonderful. Well, feel free to reach out to Laura with additional questions, and please follow Cyril's story on social media channels that she mentioned. And we also have an ask. If you are enjoying Envision, please consider supporting us. We are actively seeking value-aligned sponsors. If you would like to learn more about sponsoring, please email us at envision at regenerate.coach. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Tuesday. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and this is Envision. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. For more information about today's guests and upcoming shows, please see our show page on voiceamerica.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.